Hello and welcome to episode number 307 of the Armin Show podcast, which has been improving by the day. On this episode, we have the author of Brainscapes. It is Dr. Rebecca Schwartzlaus of Washington University. She is a cognitive neuroscientist, and we are going to be learning a little bit about brain maps. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Armin. So good to be here. I'm glad to have you on here on this show, which has been developing over time into cool things. Now, before we get into the content of the book, first, I like the concept of brainscapes and maps and how we can possibly reverse engineer those later on. But how did you get into the field of cognitive neuroscience in the first place? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's sort of called to me. I've, I've always been really interested in the brain, um, really interested in our minds. And cognitive neuroscience is this beautiful intersection between the two where you can kind of straddle those lines and think both about the, the brain as a physical entity and think about um, how our mind works and, and all of the wonderful um, tidbits we learn from psychology and, and try to put those things together. That's cool. Now, I wanted to start this episode by giving a shout out to Sally Fry Schwartzlos, who is your mother of past remembrance and a big part of the basis behind the energy for the book and the people behind us are what cause us to do things. Can you tell us all a little bit about Sally Fry? That's lovely. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> my mother was always my inspiration and kind of role model. Uh, she was a, a children's librarian. Um, she, she, loved, she loved children. She loved stories. Um, and she was just wonderful at reaching out to people. But in what I really learned from her that I that that I brought to the writing of this book um, was uh, just a kind of kind of a, ability to retain a sort of childlike fascination with the world and an openness to um, you know the way things are uh, rather than looking at the world as you know what should what should they be like and how should everyone else be kind of accepting things the way they are and, and sort of looking beneath the surface saying like what, you know, what, why are things the way they are and understanding it and accepting it and, and seeing the beauty um, in how things and people are. Um, so I tried to channel that for the book. Um, she passed away from cancer um, while I was writing the book. And I was very grateful that she was able to read um, um, a, a, a late draft, not the, the very final draft, but she was able to read it and she knew it was going to be published and and that meant a lot to her and, and to me to share that with her. That is cool. She is part of the early step in a map that led to your current moment. That's a neat thing. Yeah. We well, I actually that. wrote about oh, <laughs> I actually wrote about her as well because she has uh, she had no sense of smell. She was born without a sense of smell, so she wound up being kind of featured as well as a little story of of somebody who who had been born and never experienced a particular sensory modality. I like that concept when you brought it up because I always think a good chunk of not almost everybody misses some elements of the whole experience. We have our own experience. We might have 80% of all the absorption of sensory stimuli that is in total and somebody else has a different uh, 80% or some portion. And so we can relate on the things that we have similar, but then there's pieces that we'll never know. Or so, also another thing I think about is like, Visually, if you go into a new city, some people, they're real estate focused. So all they see is buildings. Some people are architecture. So all they see is that. And so 
we're only taking in a certain amount, but that's okay because that's like our uh, forte, our forte a bit. That's pretty cool. Shout out to Sal. Now, also, I wanted to throw in one. You, you had an acknowledgement to Michael Graziano. He has been a past guest on the show, talked about uh, consciousness. Do you look into consciousness as well when you're looking at the brain or not so much? Um, but so there are, there are some neuroscientists who really focus specifically on consciousness. And I am um, not brave enough to be one of them. But I do think that much of what I discuss in the book is, is it's the foundations of consciousness. I mean, so much of obviously what kind of it's, it's discussing how these brain maps that I describe and the neural processes that I describe sort of lead to the um, what we perceive, how we take, as you said, kind of a, a bustling world and sort of um, skim it down into this kind of distillation that we, we consciously perceive. So consciousness is very much, I think, a part of the book without um, without me tackling the big question of what exactly it is. Um, but it, 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 I think it's, it's such a, it's such an exciting and crucial part of, of, of everything we think about when we think about how the brain works. I was just thinking of gestures when I was making a movement there a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about gestures and how it's so valuable when you communicate. So I'll be doing a lot of them, frankly. <laughs> now you talk about maps right from the beginning and how they are built into our brain. Why is it such a relevant point? What are these maps? Some people don't even, they've never heard of this concept. Right. And, you know, part of, part of my goal with the, the book was to introduce them in a way that would be comprehensible because at first glance, it just sounds weird. How could you possibly have a map in your brain? Um, and some people maybe have come across the idea in an introductory psychology class, maybe in college, but it may still be kind of hard to really intuitively understand what it is. So the first the first chapter of the book is really walking through exactly what it is. And and what it is is um, you know as as in popular science we often you, you you if you follow the brain in popular science you often hear about brain areas. And so people probably your viewers will be familiar with the idea that different brain areas um, different bits of brain have kind of specializations. They sort of specialize in processing different types of information and carrying out different sorts of computations. And if somebody has like a stroke or, or other type of brain damage that destroys one of, you know, particular area, they'll have particular problems based on what that area did. So that's kind of a fundamental kind of underpinning of, of cognitive neuroscience and neuroscience in general. So what um, brain maps are is when you take one of these areas that I mentioned and you, you look within it, so you, you start to look inside of an area at how it is organized, um, oftentimes that organization is in fact a, a literal map, a spatial representation across the surface of your brain or within the structures inside your brain. Um, that reflects what you're, what you're seeing, what you're perceiving, um, feeling on your skin, the space around you. So um, as wild as it is, what I'm saying is that there's a point to point kind of relationship between, you know, a spot in, you know, a visual map at the back of your brain and a spot in your visual field where you're, where you're looking. And so what's happening is, you know, what you're seeing, what your eyeballs are detecting is coming into your eyeballs. Um, but in terms of what you perceive, it's determined by what, how that representation in that back of the brain and that, that map, that correspondence between 
where activity in the brain is representing and what it's representing forms maps that you can actually see with um, functional MRI, which is a type of brain scan, um, or you can even you can even stain a, a brain and, and visually see the map by converting activity that the brain has been doing into something that's visual that you can see. So there are some pictures in the book of these actual brain maps that in, in one case show what, you know, what an animal was looking at. Um, so that information is there. And that organization is not just kind of amazing and cool in and of itself, but it's really informative for us first in terms of explaining how we think and perceive because these maps and the kind of quirks that they have um, are shaping how we perceive and how we remember and how we imagine. Um, so they are profoundly important. Right. They're built in there and they represent, they end up representing how we talk or where we're more likely to head towards. How did we, I always think of deconstruction in a form how did we reverse engineer toward these maps so that we could see that they were there because before we know something, we don't know something. Yes. Yeah. So how did we, how do we discover them? How did yes. we? Yes. Mm -hmm. So actually the, um, I think the kind of earliest, the earliest discovery um, would have been the motor cortex, um, which is the part of the brain that in uh, like the kind of last part of the brain that then goes on to send signals to your muscles and causes you to move, allows you to do all the wonderful things that your body can do. And so this motor cortex has um, a layout, a map layout that's um, grossly organized according to your body. And so, you know, there's an area that is kind of in charge of controlling hand movements or things that are primarily, um, yes. And there's an area where for facial movements, including speech and an area for wiggling your toes. And so the, these different kind of zones were first discovered by a neurologist who was studying patients. Um, and this is a general theme in neuroscience that most discoveries come from patients who are having problems. Um, and in this case, he was studying patients with um, epilepsy or who were experiencing seizures. And he noticed that in certain patients, they would have seizures, the seizures would travel, they would start somewhere. Like, you know, the, there's a story in the book, you're like one person who just like, he was eating breakfast and his thumb, his thumb starts doing this. And, and, then, and then the movement starts to travel and it would travel through the body across different people. It might start in a different part of the body, but then the movement would like spread in a very consistent order. And based on that order, um, this neurologist was able to kind of guess that there was a map inside the brain that activity as it kind of went out of control in a seizure that it would spread across the surface of the brain. And as a result, the movement would spread across the surface of the body. I liked that concept because when I saw it, it's another, I always like when things go to another level. So if someone had a seizure, there were doctors that would treat that and they don't, it's okay, they had a seizure. But the next level is, wait a minute, we're starting to see patterns and it's passing on this way. It's, it's moving. Wait a minute, does that relate to something? Every time you do something repetitively or a lot, you start to really get a sense of, something deeper. And then if you do that and you look at that a lot, you get a sense of something, the power of repetition in some forms. I like these kind of uh, personality or life concepts to link back to things. Seizures are, yes. I, I noticed that in the book that seizure patterns pinpoint damage in the brain is how you mentioned it there. That's interesting. Now, so when we find these kind of movements, um, what does that represent in the brain? That's how uh, motor function 
travels or how does that, what does that tell us about the brain? It tells us about how the brain represents the movements that we make and in doing so helps us carry them out. Um, and so speaking of Dr. Graziano, you know, I describe in, in the book um, some seminal work that he and his colleagues did where they could stimulate a particular neuron in this motor map and they would watch the animal do this totally, you know, so in this case, it would be like a monkey and the monkey would just would just kind of do the carry out this motion that involved multiple muscles and was very kind of smooth and elegant. And it would just happen automatically every time that neuron was excited. Um, and so that idea that, you know, that representation, that neuron and the sets of neurons around it that are kind of representing certain actions, those are kind of helping. It's both a way that our brain can in, uh, carry out important and uh, the, the motions that we use the most and the ones that we rely on for survival, like eating, you know, so these motions tend to be things like eating or defending yourself from attack, um, reaching, stepping. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, myself. Yeah. Yeah. So there are things that, that the, that an animal or, you know, for our case would be humans would, would do a lot, um, or things that would be important for survival and, and having that encoded in our brain makes it easier for us to quickly and easily and elegantly carry out these actions. That makes sense. Now, this is in the motor cortex. Another thing that comes to my mind was visually, you had a section about smell, which is related to what we mentioned earlier, lack of smell can be something. Smell being encoded for like a benzaldehyde, I think, and other molecules and the smells that come with them as uh, there's little regions that are lighted up for that smell. And there's little regions of neurons that are lighted up for that smell. Is that also a map? That's a great question. So there are, um, I, I kind of draw this distinction in my book about um, what are considered literal maps, you know, topographic maps, they're called in neuroscience of vision and also audition. So hearing has a maps based on frequency that are continuous. Um, and, you know, with somatosensory with touch, we have, we have body surface maps. Um, then you get into the uh, into the other kinds of things that we do, and instead of being continuous, we want to um, know like what is something. So in in a, in a sense, we're trying to categorize it, which is um, is is different than sort of perceiving um, in 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 that early raw form with um, with visual location or with frequency. And so for these kinds of I call them maps, but they're a little different. They're really kind of like zones. Um, and usually these zones sort of together form a larger sort of, they're organized amongst themselves in a, in a systematic fashion that you, you might call a map, but they're, they're like neighborhoods. They're neighborhoods that are dedicated to processing really important things in your world. So, um, from the visual perspective, we have, for example, um, areas of the brain that are dedicated to representing um, faces that we see. And, and those areas are, are crucial for allowing us to recognize a face, even a very familiar face or our own face in the mirror. And if damage takes place, then we, we lose that ability. Um, and similarly with smell. So there are, um, there are some areas that have been found in, in animals that are like zones that are specifically kind of either helping either kind of um, recognizing scents that are indicating that a predator is around and then they, and then activity there initiates this kind of, oh gosh, you know, I better run or I better freeze activity. Or, you know, there's another area that, you know, uh, 
has to do with like picking up pheromones from the opposite sex. And so that you know, starts a whole kind of mating act, act actions. So um, these are some of the ways in which our brain is sort of, um, or at least the animal brain is able to um, translate even like this, a smell it's never, an animal's never smelled before of a predator that it's never met um, into an appropriate action. Um, so it's, it's, those are like, those are kind of pseudo maps. They're, they're neighborhoods, but I think they illustrate the same point. They, they give us the same tools for working and, and interacting in our world. And, um, and in knowing what they are and seeing them, um, it helps us to understand sort of our own existence and what is important for us. Mm -hmm. When I saw that, I thought of this one book, I, I never read it, but it was about smells and how we're able to separate them all. And they have like, specific chemicals that that's that smell and this is that smell and we have like i don't know how many hundred of them something like that it's interesting to think of how much we and we associate those with certain moments in our existence almost which is funny like when i was little i played nintendo and there was like a plastic smell from the styrofoam and so whenever i'd smell that later on boom instantly thinking of playing nintendo which is kind of funny yeah smell is interestingly linked to memory in a deep and profound way um, which, which is why people who lose their sense of smell later in life can be really, really depressed and, and, and severely impacted by it because they lose that kind of extra level of experiencing the world that they may not have even been consciously aware of. It was part of it. Take it for granted. And also no yes. cinnamon. Where's cinnamon now? It's gone. That's pretty good. Now there's smell and there's the motor cortex as far as movement. What about the first one that came to mind to me is always like thought patterns. Are there maps of our thought patterns in place as well? That's a great question. Um, and so in the later chapters of the book, what I, what I, what I try to explain is how we actually harness um, these maps, which are usually, you know, they're laid down very early in life. Um, and, um, you know, and they don't change a lot uh, as we grow. You know, their general organization stays pretty pretty similar throughout childhood and adulthood. And so, um, you know, how do we how do we kind of then learn to represent more complicated concepts and and thoughts? And how are those you know are these maps related or important for for thinking? And what I discuss is that they they are they're not the whole story. So there are other um, areas of the brain that are not organized in maps. They are um, what I call they have like a a, a population code, a, a code organization. So that there's, you know, it's really like the pattern. Um, they're all mixed up together, and two neighboring neurons might be representing very different things. Um, but it's the pattern of activity across all of them um, that tells us information. Um, whereas in a map, you know, you have two neurons next to each other, they're doing similar things and, and that where exactly they are tells us something about what they're representing. Um, and the combination, so the, the codes are awesome for representing new things um, because they give us total flexibility to learn new associations. Um, and the maps give us the stability, this kind of the stable representation of um, space and of sensation that we can then um, integrate these kind of new ideas with. And so actually we, we do, you know, using as areas of the brain that have codes, we are also harnessing um, our, our uh, topographic brain maps when we think about things like numbers or time, um, or even when you, you hear a word, you actually, um, like if you hear grab, the word grab, um, 
a part of your motor cortex that um, that is engaged in and hand movements will be active as well. So you know, if you see a hand, then an air part of your um, that you will get activation there. So you have this way in which thoughts, like meaning echoes within your um, brain maps and it, not just one, but many at the same time and not just in me, but also in you. Um, so that there's this consistency in that representation. That is a cool thing. It made me think of this one book I read a long time ago about if you pretend you're swinging a tennis racket in your mind, you're somewhat training your ability to swing a tennis racket, even though you're not swinging your tennis racket. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, and I talk about in the book how um, imagination, you can see imagination in brain maps and that what you're imagining, the contents of what you're imagining, the way that they activate your brain maps is very similar. It's like a weaker version of um, what would happen in your brain maps if you were actually doing or seeing or experiencing that thing that you're imagining. Um, so, so, you know, it, it may well be true that, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not in, you know, there's, there's a whole, you know, sports field where they might say, you know, yeah, imagine, and then you'll get better. And that, and there, there could very well be a neural basis for that. That's not my area, but um, definitely similar parts of the brain get um, roped into representing both what you see and what you imagine. Makes sense. And I think that's super cool because it also reminds us that what we are able to perceive constrains what we're able to imagine. And it's these brain maps that help explain why that is that I thought about this a lot with my mother because she would try to have me describe smell. And I, you know, how do you describe the sense of smell or like, you know, the smell of a rose or of a, an outhouse to someone who's never smelled and try to get them to know what that's like. They can't imagine it if they don't have the neural architecture to, um, to produce that imagery. It's hard to relate it. What does cinnamon smell like? Well, it's an oatmeal. You put it on, maybe it tastes good. I don't know. That's true. That's very hard to translate. I like that you brought that up about the connection between uh, the imagining and it actually is processing. And then that relates to our, it's sort of like our abilities almost. The, the expanse of what we are thinking here is connected to the expanse of what we're able to do externally. I, I like that. Do you, um, do you like to think of things in an open-ended framework in existence? This is like a personality type question. Or... Do you like to be more limited in structure and work within confines? Mm, that's a good question. I actually am a little bit of both. Um, I, I like to dig deep. Um, and in fact, I, I usually have to be like, okay, stop researching. <laughs> stop researching this thing. You've spent enough time. Move on to the next thing. So I, I love to keep digging. Um, but then I also really love um, kind of to sit back and reflect on how all those various holes I've dug link together um, and try to think about the big picture. And that kind of makes the digging more exhilarating as well, because then it's all part of a kind of a grander story. And so thinking, I think we should always be thinking, you know, we should always be digging because I think digging is how we, we get answers. But if we're not also thinking about how it's fitting into the larger perspective of kind of our world, our science, how the brain works, then we could be um, digging in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the wrong place or um, not really able to, 
discover how what we find is relevant um, in the in the big picture. I think about this concept often is sort of like there's an expansion period and then there's a consolidation period. And if those are not happening as like waves that are sinusoidal, classic word, then we are limited in our ability to grow. That's what one thing I think about. Now, maps as far as applicability, how should how could the average individual either use knowledge of brain maps for themselves? Is it something they should use in some actual actionable way? Or is it something in the back of their mind that can bring peace or understanding? So I, so I specifically wrote the book, not as kind of a how-to book. I wanted to, because you know we, we, we've lived in our brains and in some way what I wanted to do was um, explain why your brain is the way that it is. You know, I'm not, I, I, I think there's an uh, incredible power and sort of it's empowering to know um, better how your mind works, why it works the way that it does. And it's just thrilling because I think when you step back and you sort of, you know, we've lived with our perceptual experience as it is from birth and it it's just taken for granted. But if you understand how your specific, you know, rather small amount of brain space um, is, and, and the constraints that that places. Yeah. It's like, you know, you could fit it inside a hat and it's supposed to represent a whole world. How do we, do, how do we do that? Well, we, do. we have a lot of tricks <laughs> and one of them is brain maps. So um, I think though, seeing how that shapes, how we think and how we move and how we act is um, I think it's exhilarating. And I want to share that with people. Um, and then, you know, secondarily, a couple of things that I talk about in the book that I, I would like to raise awareness of. Um, one is about the kind of importance of very early life on the development of brain maps and in the development of the brain in general. And so I think, you know, I'm a parent, um, you know, you see your, your kid and it's kind of amazing to watch them grow, but you know, there's so much more under the hood happening. And actually, you know, baby brains are like, they're like superheroes. They, they're superpowers. They can do almost anything. They're just incredibly plastic, flexible. And um, so kind of appreciating how they at that age are learning and how that shapes their later kind of brain organization and, and capabilities is really, I think, valuable for us as, a, as parents and also as a society, because I think that we could be investing a lot more in helping parents and families um, you know, give children the kind of opportunities and experiences that will help give them the most kind of bang for their buck later when they have to go and learn to do other more complicated things. Um, and then the, the other thing that I, I really wanted to get at is um, I, I have a chapter about um, brain computer interfaces. Um, so essentially this, and this is a, this is um has is something that has been around for a while, but is kind of rapidly growing and becoming more mainstream that there's, there are technological advances in trying to have brains and computers talk to one another. Um, and so that you could either read information out of someone's brain, or you could convey information into someone's brain um, through a device. And um, brain maps explain how that's possible. And they also explain how, which way, the ways in which that's, the opportunities there are limited. Um, and so I spend a chapter talking about why they are, why BCIs work, kind of where things are now with them, um, 
the challenges that they face, but also the ways in which they are certainly going to overcome them. And, and then in the end, kind of, we need to be thinking as a society that this is, uh, this is coming, you know, <laughs> this is coming on some front, it, you know, whether it's going to involve actually having electrodes inside our brains or whether it's going to involve something sitting on our scalp, it's coming. And um, it's, it's not far away. It's, you know, it's something that we need to be anticipating and talking about as a society um, about the ethics and, you know, what kind of regulations we want to place on uh, this technology before it's already widespread, because it's right now only in the hands of corporations. And if we don't do something, then we're kind of leaving all the choices up to them. That's true. Is it fair to say that artificial intelligence systems are even at this current moment, partially reverse engineering our thought processes and or thought maps already today for purchases and things of that nature? Yes, absolutely. So already, right, because of the way that, that um, you know, our web browsers and our social media is tracking the choices that we make or, you know, our, our, our preferred shopper card that keeps track of what we buy, um, already um, machine learning, which is a, a branch of artificial intelligence, is incredibly good at figuring out, you know, what we're going to buy next, which can be useful, but also like, you know, whether we're depressed, whether we have Parkinson's disease, um, whether we're pregnant, things that we, you know, may not even know ourselves and certainly don't want a corporation to know. Um, and so already these problems are here, um, but they're, they're going to get bigger uh, if we kind of throw in um, the power of neural data combined with these machine learning algorithms. Yeah, that makes sense. I logged into a system online and it told me I was pregnant. So I knew it was wrong. <laughs> Error. You have made a mistake, computer. No, it didn't tell me that. That'd be that would be off. Classic. Now, two things come to mind here. Well, one was that reverse engineering. Two is the plasticity we mentioned earlier. It made me think of I always wonder about like what's the cutoff? What age would you say is the cutoff where let's say 80% or some majority portion of a person's base thought patterns, personality is fixed in place and there'll be a little adjustment on top, but pretty much it's cleared out. What age range would you say that's in? That's a, a very great and complicated question. Um, you know, in terms of, in, ter in terms of like higher level kind of like behavioral patterns that to some degree we can talk about in terms of personality, you know, like whether you respond to certain situations with anger or anxiety or things that, um, I think we have the very much the power to develop that throughout life. And as we change our actions, um, we can change sort of the, the neural circuits through which we sort of automate our reaction to the world. So there we have, we have, I think in that respect, we have a, a quite a, a considerable power to change. Um, I think um, in terms of brain maps or the kind of organization of all of those parts of the brain, um, that, uh, uh, some of that is, there's even, there's even aspects of our, um, kind of, um, neuro, like our hormonal neuroendocrine system and our layouts that is kind of getting solidified in the first week or two of life. I mean, very early. So it really depends these critical periods as they call them, um, in psychology, they, they are different for different functions. And that's because the brain is kind of very dynamically growing and the child's experience is very dynamically kind of evolving. And so different and, you know, different, um, neural 
processes sort of crystallize at different ages. But in terms of these brain maps, um, a lot of it happens really in the first few months of life. Their, the organization of their brain is really dramatically undergoing change. And, and so that even later in their first year of life, things are more stable. And of course, then they're, they're doing more refining. So there's, there's other things that they, you know, for example, they're being exposed to new things and learning new things. Um, but uh, the idea that, you know, even in that first week or two of life, they are sucking so much information out of the world around them, out of the things that they touch and the things that they hear. And this is helping them to um, kind of manufacture and create and, and, and tweak their brains in such a way as to be hopefully best adapted to life in that world. And this is, this is not just great for a normal a baby who doesn't have any health problems, but it's, it's usually great for babies who, for example, if you have, if you have a baby who's born blind, um, this gives babies who are born blind and, you know, who have, who that blindness cannot be fixed the opportunity to really radically kind of redistrict and, and, and reorganize the visual portions of their brain in ways that they are going to be able to use for the rest of their lives. That makes sense. I always think about the times where that element is paused or not paused, but the, ch the changes will be limited. You know, there's this one concept that there was, it's kind of a sad concept, but that there's always one day that that's the last time a parent's like, carried a child they didn't know it but then like that was the last time and then after that they just never did that and so then i think about certain points in life where this quality of personality or this amount of reaching out it's like that was the point so it's like a cutoff point i think about in the background which is a fair consideration of sorts now one thing i want to check counter is what about are there any challenges in the field of brain maps or challenges to the field or any difficulties you have had or controversy, these kinds of things. I never go into the opposite side. What's the difficulties here or the, is there any views against it or such? Well, um, you know, it's funny because it's, it, brain maps are the old news that stays new. I mean, we've known about at least some brain maps since the 1800s. And so in some ways it's like, oh, you know, brain maps. Yeah, <laughs> we all know about them. But what's, what's kind of amazing, you know, and whereas there are newer features of the brain that we, you know, they're not new, they've always been there, but we are, you know, we're learning a lot more about how to think about the brain as a series of, of kind of this complex network of, of, of kind of multi, you know, hierarchical, multiple con um, uh, connections. And we didn't have the capacity to be able to think of it that way, both technologically and computationally, um, you know, even 50 years ago to the degree that we can now. But what's amazing is that as we keep, it's just the, it's a story that keeps on popping up because as new br brain areas are investigated, we keep finding this, these organizations, these, these, these um, maps within these areas. And um, so it's just, and we find them not just in humans, we find them in, in just an incredible variety of species, including rodents and, you know, bugs and birds. They're just everywhere in life. So it's, um, you know, it's the story that keeps, that keeps giving, um, but it's not always the story that that the scientist is the, not the new hotness <laughs> in some ways. Um, and I would say also the balance between where the brain, um, like codes versus maps, the line between these things is not, is not always clear. And in fact, when you, when you zoom in very, very close into a map, 
um, often there's kind of like this amazing micro architecture to the organization within a map. Um, and it's hard to describe without pictures. There's some pictures in the book that are cool. It's kind of like thinking about it is sort of like thinking about physics when you get really, really small particles get weird. Um, but the, but the point is that there are ways in which even, um, maps kind of have deeply embedded within them at their core, they have codes. So the balance between those things is, is kind of fluid and, and it's not a clear distinction. It's like computer chips and when you get super duper small and then like the electricity through a transistor and then it like affects the other it's like one cell not one cell one atom thick borders and now you're dealing with a different level of physics like you're describing here that's pretty nifty the changes at really small levels that we don't know about but later on we'll have some sort of architecture for that micro architecture what is something you would want all the listeners to know as a takeaway about brain maps that would would put them at a greater state of understanding i i truly hope and i say this at the end of the book i mean i think my goal is that my read the readers who read this book will come away feeling enlightened about their own kind of place in the world their the way that their mind is shaped by their physical experience and, and why they think and feel the way they do, that they'll notice features of their experience that they hadn't noticed before. And, you know, I think in some way there's like really a grander story to how you know, brain maps, which arise because of physical constraints, our brain having to be really tiny and energy efficient and still very powerful. Um, yeah, yeah, again, inside the hat. Yeah. So um, given that, you know, we, we really harness tools um, that are based very much in our physical world. And so, you know, I think in some ways, seeing that, seeing how we are sort of shaped by our physical world and experiences in terms of our brains, um, and realizing that the, there's some profound universe, there's a profound universality to this across species and across individuals. So these are features that you and I share and that we also share with snakes, you know, that is, I think, really beautiful and amazing. And I think it's something that you can come away with feeling like you have learned about your experience. We are all connected in that form. Last thing I want to check, who, do you have any scientists you look to who uh, guide your thinking or you you'll just like the research that they're doing in some category is there any people that come to mind as like a representative or that you like oh man i i, I think i'm afraid to even answer that question there are <laughs> so many scientists that i admire and honestly the way that i think science usually works is that you have to be kind of careful about crediting one person with with any particular um, advance because there is such a network of kind of coordination of working together to make new discoveries. And then on top of it, um, building upon the results of, of others. So, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that question and just say that I, I have admiration for very, for many scientists. <laughs> that makes sense. And the point you brought up reminded me, I recently read that more papers today are multi-author than they were like 40 years ago. It's much more collaborative mixing of sorts, kind of like the Santa Fe Institute and it's a multidisciplinary mixing, which is cool. Nice. Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca Schwartzlos, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show and discussing brainscapes and related concepts. Well, thank you so much, Armin. It was just delightful. I, I enjoyed it. 
I enjoyed it as well. And we are out. <laughs> <laughs>